Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our Advent series leading up to Christmas. Um, for those of you who have been here, you know that um, this Advent series is called Shadows of the Savior, where we are looking at how the Old Testament foreshadows the person and work, the birth, the life and death of the Lord Jesus. And we're tracing the shadows of the Savior through the major Old Testament covenants. We looked at God's covenant with Adam. We looked at God's covenant with Noah. This morning, we look at God's covenant with Abraham. And the shadows of the Savior are everywhere. Beloved, remember, these are the very written words of God, written for you and written for me. Genesis 12, verses one through three. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, friends, I don't know if you've seen the relatively new um, progressive insurance commercials that are directed toward helping you not to turn into your parents. I don't know if you've ever seen those. Some of my personal favorite, meaning they are intended to help you not to adopt the annoying stereotypical traits of older people. Um, and so um, there is a therapist that's highlighted in the commercial his name is Dr. Rick, okay? And so Dr. Rick is supposed to take, you know, people probably in their late 30s, early 40s, uh, to place that would be triggers, triggers that would turn them in to their parents. Who here has seen any of these commercials? These commercials are great. So, so there are so many we could go with. Um, one of the ones is, you know, he's, he's driving them around in what looks like a retirement bus, okay? And so he drives them to the parking lot of a large football stadium. And he lets these 30-somethings out of the car, maybe early 40-somethings, and they get out. And immediately one of the guys comments on the fact that it's good that they're parking here because they're close to an exit, which provides easy access out of the stadium. Another person comments that it's wonderful how many compact car spaces there are. That generates a lot of revenue. And of course, Dr. Rick is there saying, we're not here for the parking, we're not here for the parking, we're here for the game, let's go into the game. Then the next scene, you have a plumber who is fixing under the sink, fixing the sink, and you have this man, late 30s, 40, standing over the plumber, helping him, coaching him, giving him tools. And then Dr. Rick says, you hired him, you hired him. He doesn't need you. Step away, please. <laughs> One of my favorites is, so he's, he's doing like a seminar on technology awareness. And he asked the group, he says, who here can open a PDF? To which they all say, oh, no, not me. No, I can't go there. <laughs> PDFs are beyond me. Very, very funny. Well, I see it in my life all the time that I am turning into my father. I really am. I see it in the way that I talk to my boys and I tell them when they're walking out the door always, watch your speed, watch your speed, always watch your speed. I'm in my 50s now and this summer, my dad's 87, when I would drive him around, that's exactly what he says, David, watch your speed. There could be a speeding trap right up here. You never know what's around this corner. Watch out. 
I'm also physically becoming like my father. I was recently diagnosed with glaucoma. That sounds terrible, but it just means too much eye pressure. It's easily treated with some eye drops, reduce the pressure. But for years, I asked my dad, why are you doing that? Why are you taking all these eye drops? And he said he had glaucoma. Well, I was just diagnosed with glaucoma, but it was caught early. Everything's going to be fine. Probably going to start the eye drops soon. But in the course of this eye examination, they also tested my eyesight to update my contact and glasses prescription. And you know what happens when you go to an eye exam, those of you who have been through an eye exam. I was talking to Allison Averett about this uh, before this morning, and Allison's never been to an eye exam, which is amazing to me how someone in their, you know, late 20s um, could <laughs> have never been to an eye exam. At any rate, so you sit down in the chair, there's the optometrist, or the, the optometrist or the ophthalmologist, and you have this device, okay? You sit down, you put your chin in it, and there's this device, and you, and you look through the, a variety of lenses. So one eye is covered, one eye is open, and so you're looking at the eye chart on the back wall. Those of you who have done that know what I'm talking about. And the first lens they put in there, it's so blurry. You can hardly see the eye charts there, but you can't see it. And with each successive lens that they slap in there, it gets clearer and clearer and clearer. And then when they provide just the right lens, it looks like the eye chart is in HD. It's like jumping off the wall, okay? You feel like you have eagle eye vision, okay? Well, it occurred to me years ago that covenant theology is kind of like, or that's a good illustration of, of what covenant theology does, okay? What, what, what God does when he unfolds these covenants in the Old Testament is that he foreshadows the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And so in God's covenant with Adam, in God's covenant with Noah, and God's covenant with Abraham. We'll see God's covenant with Moses next week and then David after that. In each of these covenants, in each of these agreements, you will see shadow after shadow after shadow of the Savior of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so a few weeks ago when we did Genesis 3.15 and God promises the gospel for the first time that through the seed of the woman, he's going to crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3.15, we get the first promise of a redeemer, okay? And so to use the eye exam as an illustration, that's like one of the early lenses, you know? So you, you, you can see the back wall and you start seeing things more clearly, this lens that's put through. We learn about the gospel in Adam. Last week, we saw God's covenant with Noah. We saw shadows of the Lord Jesus everywhere. It's like another lens. And the eye chart in the back, it becomes more clear. The eye chart in the back is really the fullness of the new covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, each successive covenant is like a new lens and you learn more about what's God, what God is doing for us in the personal work of Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're taking our eye exam and we're getting a new lens put in and that eye chart is becoming more clear. We're learning more and more about the Savior to come and it's incredible. We're going to learn more about that this morning. Okay, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 in your bulletin, we see that God makes a covenant with Abraham where he promises a number of things. He promises to make Abraham into a great nation with many descendants. He's going to give Abraham and Abraham's descendants this amazing land. And through Abraham, ultimately, what's he going to do? He's going to bless all the families of the world. So it's people, nation, 
land, worldwide blessings, descendants more than sand on the seashore. This is God's providence and his covenant to Abraham. But in order for this to happen, there's a catch. What's the catch in order for these covenant promises to be brought to bear? What's the thing that's standing in the way? There's this literary, this dramatic tension between Genesis 12, okay, and later with the birth of the promised son Isaac. What's the problem? The covenant promise is going to run through Abraham and Sarah's son. Okay, but there's a problem. Um, like Chris explained, how old was Abraham when he was called, or Abram? 75 years old, okay? When God tells Abraham and Sarah that it's through them, through that union of those two people that the promise would come, how did Abraham and Sarah respond? Do you remember? Like they laughed. Like the text indicates when Abraham found out he would have a son through Sarah, he fell on his face laughing. Sarah laughed. And so ultimately against all odds, when God gives to Abraham and Sarah, their own son, Isaac. It is nothing short of a miracle. Sarah had gone through menopause. It was impossible. And yet God had done the impossible by giving them this beloved, beloved son. That's how God would work his promises through Isaac. And then in Genesis 22... The unthinkable happens. God asks Abraham to do the unthinkable. Now, recently, I heard of a man who was called into his boss's office where he was sure to receive a promotion, but instead he got fired. He was totally shocked and caught off guard and did not see it coming. Okay, for those of you students here, um, imagine, you know, uh, trying out for a team and you feel like you're one of the best on the team, Okay, and you go to the last meeting with the coach thinking you're going to be in the starting unit and you get cut. Or you try out for the play and you think you might get a leading role and then you don't make the play at all. Like just something that is totally shocking and unexpected. That does not begin to compare with what Abraham hears in Genesis 22. Okay? God has made a covenant with Abraham, but now God is going to test him okay, which is similar to what's happened in the previous covenants, right? God uh, makes a covenant with Adam, but he puts what in the midst of the, of the garden? He puts the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil to test Adam. He makes a covenant with Noah, where he promises to save Noah and Noah's family, but what does Noah have to do? It took great faith to do what Noah did. What did Noah have to do? He had to build the ark. He had to get into the ark. That would have seemed crazy, ludicrous, foolish, but Noah did it. He got into the ark. He showed faith. But this test, this test feels far more intense than anything that has come so far. Okay, look at panel five in your bulletin. So in order for the Abrahamic covenant to be brought to bear, everything had to run through Genesis 22. And this test that God gave to Abraham. This is a test of the covenant and the shadows of the Savior are everywhere. Verses one and two of Genesis 22. After these things, after all the work that God had done today, God tested Abraham and said to him, 
Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Now, friends, I think it's safe to say that that is one of the most unexpected twists anywhere in the Bible. Everything had been leading up to God fulfilling his covenant through the offspring of Abraham and Sarah, even though they could not have children. Against all odds, miraculously, God grants to Abraham and Sarah a beloved boy, Isaac. And now God, inexplicably, is asking Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. That is, that is amazing, that is unexpected, totally unforeseen. You know, typically it's the sinfulness of God's people that stands in the way of the fulfillment of the covenant, but here it seems like the Lord God is the one standing in the way. Because the degree to which this test succeeds, it's a threat to the covenant promise. The covenant promise runs through Isaac, not Ishmael, Isaac. This is the ultimate test in that it's, it's confusing and seemingly contrary to God's character. It, it feels cruel if you think about it, what God is asking Abraham to do. So really put yourself in his position. He's a real person. This is real history. After many years, God had granted to him and Sarah a son. And God was asking Abraham to sacrifice his son. Can you imagine anything more horrific or more difficult? For those of you who are parents, this is the most unthinkable thing that could ever be asked of you. It's hard for us to relate to, really. It's hard for us to relate to because we know that God would never ask us to do something like this. In fact, if someone thought God was telling them to do, to do this, what would we think? We would think that they had a mental illness. We, we would think that maybe they were possessed by a demon because this is just absolutely unthinkable. You would never, the Lord Jesus would never ask you or me to sacrifice our child. And yet that's what the Lord was asking Abraham to do to sacrifice his beloved son. I ask you, why would the God of the Bible, who was gracious and compassionate, who was full of loving kindness, why would he ask Abraham to do this? It seems totally at odds with who we know the God of the Bible to be. The God of the Bible detests child sacrifice. How could Yahweh ask Abraham to do this. I assure you there's a reason. There's a very profound reason that he's asking Abraham to do this. So let's look at the text, verses 3 and 4. The narrative carries us along. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him, verse 4, 
And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar, which is, which is the writer's way of implying that there was a huge struggle going on within Abraham. Look at the language again on verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. I think implication, he saw it with dread. He could not imagine what he had to do, what was before him. I can remember a number of years ago receiving an email requesting a meeting that I knew was going to be extremely difficult. I can remember not sleeping. I can remember dreading the meeting and the meeting was the next day. I cannot imagine what it was like for Abraham to think about this and ruminate about this and worry about this and fret about this for three days straight. I can remember with our second child, our beloved Cole, who's healthy and whole and wonderful, but there were some concerns early on in the pregnancy. I can remember um, that we were scheduled for a much more detailed sonogram, okay, so that we could detect any problems if they were there. And I could hardly walk into the room where the sonogram was going to occur because I was so concerned for what he might say was wrong with my son. Thankfully, everything was okay. I cannot imagine what it felt like for Abraham. You will not understand the reason and rationale for this command unless you really try to put yourself in Abraham's situation. Unless you imagine how difficult this would be to hand over your only beloved child. Is there anything in the world that we love more than our children? I don't think so. There are many couples that I have prayed with over the years who have greatly struggled with fertility. And if and when they conceived, never in a million years would they hand that child over for something like this. In fact, oftentimes, folks that have struggled with fertility, you know, only ultimately to conceive, they do everything within their power to make sure that that baby is born healthy and whole. And they bend over backwards to protect that baby in the early days. And we have this. This should be shocking. This should be emotionally shocking that the Lord God who walked with Adam in the cool of the day was asking Abraham to do this. Look at verse 5. The narrative is written in such a way for us to slow down and stop and consider. Read, slow down, stop, consider, internalize. Verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Do you think he was in denial? He's saying, I and the boy, we're going to go, we're going to go up there and worship, and then we are going to come back to you. Is he in denial? Is he hoping against hope that something's going to happen? Is he not wanting Isaac to understand what's coming? What do you think? Verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son, on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire 
and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! He said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Can you imagine a more brutal question than hearing that question from Isaac? Here's the wood. Here's the knife. Where's the fire? And one little variation from what we usually imagine, Isaac is probably not a young boy. He's probably not a child in that sense. In fact, in Genesis 22.5, Abraham and Isaac took two young men with him like as attendants to help carry the wood and the other provisions. The word that is used of Isaac for boy is actually the same Hebrew word as used for those young men. It's the same word, okay? The wood, the amount of wood that would be used for that sacrifice would have been very heavy. And Isaac was called to carry it. Isaac had enough wherewithal to ask what we're doing, okay? The term given to him is the same term as those young men who are accompanying them. He was carrying the wood for the sacrifice. You should probably imagine in your mind's eye, when you're thinking about how old is Isaac, a boy of at least 13 or 14, maybe 17, maybe 18, possibly even 20 years old, would that have made this harder or easier? The fact that this would have been a 14, 15, 16-year-old youth. I don't know. It's overwhelming even, even thinking about it. Many scholars think that Isaac is asking a question that in his heart, he knows the answer to. He knows the answer already. He could sense the fact that his father was conflicted and downcast. Look at verse 8. But Abraham said, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together outside of the faith and faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ I cannot imagine anywhere in the Bible a better expression of faith in the character of God than we see here from Abraham and from Isaac both of them knew what was coming and both of them went willingly look at verse 9 when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. So whatever Isaac knew or did not know before, obviously Isaac now knows that he is the sacrifice. From my perspective, I mean, Abraham is over 100 years old. At this point, he's probably, a, he could be 115. He could be 120. How difficult do you think it would have been for Isaac to get away? It would have not been hard at all. In fact, my 17-year-old right now, so I'm a young 50, right? Um, my 17-year-old right now regularly kind of like when we walk by each other, kind of bumps me in the shoulder, you know, kind of bows up to me, trying to think who's the boss, who's the man around here, you know? If Jack Ray got the sense 
that something bad was going to happen, I could not catch him in a million years. He would fly to the north and I would never see him again. Isaac could have gotten away. You need to understand this. Isaac was probably 14, 15, 16. He could have overpowered his father. He could have gotten away. But what did he do? He willingly laid down his life because of how much he believed in the character of his father. That's what he did. Inconceivable to me. Abraham and Isaac trusted in the character of God even though this did not make sense and they did not understand. Look at verse 10. Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Is there anything more difficult to read than that? But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, the repetition is here for emphasis. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Why? For now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And behold, Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead. Perhaps the most beautiful word in the entire account, instead, in place of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Even though the sacrifice had already happened, he calls the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, when Moses was writing this account, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it, or the pronoun should be rendered he, on the mount of the Lord, he shall be. Provided. What is the point of this, my friends? Why would God ask Abraham to do something like this? God sent Abraham to the land of Moriah, and Moriah comes from the Hebrew verb to see. Abraham was there to see. He was there to see something. What was he there to see? He was there to see the cost. The test was the cost, and the cost was everything. Isaac represented everything the entirety of the covenant all of Abraham's descendants everything was rolled up into that boy what was there to be seen the cost the awful uncountable cost why would God ask Abraham to give something that would cost him everything well of course to give us a reference point for the sacrifice that the God of the Bible made because of his love for you and me. God commanded Abraham to do this, not only to foreshadow the Lord Jesus Christ. The shadows of the Savior are everywhere in terms of the substitute in everything that's portrayed. It's obviously foreshadowing the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's also there as a reference point to help us to relate to the degree to which God Almighty loves you and loves me. 
Have you ever wondered, could God, the God of the Bible, love someone like me? This is the evidence of that. This is how God has proven to you and me beyond the shadow of a doubt how much he loves us. Is there anything you love so much that you would give your child for it? Is there anything? No, there's not. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would have eternal life. That's how much God loves us. He loves us so much. Isn't it inconceivable? Okay. The angel of the Lord, many scholars think the angel of the Lord is in pre-incarnate Jesus. Many of the attributes of Yahweh God Almighty are also given to the angel of the Lord. And so at the very last moment, the angel of the Lord asked Abraham to stay his hand where he provided the substitute. That's the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus telling Abraham, hold back, God will provide a sacrifice. God will provide me to save you. That's how much the true and living God loves you and me. He sacrificed his son for us. That is just mind-blowing. Edmund Clowney writes so well. Edmund Clowney mentions John 8 that says, Abraham, or Jesus, he's quoting Jesus in John 8. In John 8, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. What in the world does that mean? Jesus is talking about Abraham. Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day and he was glad, oh, he saw that day and that sacrifice and that provision that God provided and he was glad. Clowney writes, Abraham was shown Christ's day. He was taken to the very area where the temple would later stand. That's where Mount Moriah is. Mount Moriah, where Abraham was taken to sacrifice his son, is in Jerusalem. It's where the temple would later stand. Can you believe it? Abraham was shown Christ's day. He was taken to the very area where the temple would later stand, to the very mount where the cross of Calvary would be erected. The heavenly father led his beloved up the hill to Golgotha. When the son, who was always pleasing to his father, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father paid the price in his silence. He did not intervene. Why? Because he loves you and he loves me. He gave his son up for us all. How will he not also graciously along with him give us all things in Christ? Of course he will. This lens, this lens is an amazing lens we get in the Abrahamic covenant. The shadows of the Savior of the Lord Jesus are everywhere. And it is a promise, a pledge. It is proof of how much he loves you and how much he loves me. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we, we, we don't even have the emotional, the intellectual bandwidth to understand all that is embodied in your covenant with Abraham and in the way in which you tested Abraham by, by asking him to sacrifice his 
beloved son, that, that is just hard for us to wrap our hearts and minds around. We, we just cannot imagine the love that you have for your people that led you to actually go through with it, Heavenly Father, and sacrifice your son. Father, we praise you and thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten, your beloved son, the son of your love, so that whoever believes in him would have everlasting life. Father, may we know the love of God in Christ Jesus. In his matchless name we pray, amen and amen.